hello, y'all, and good night. Welcome to Southern Sleep Stories with Brandon. I'm your sleep guide for the night, Brandon. And in this podcast, I'm seeking only one thing, to help you have the best night's sleep you've had. What I'll do in this show to help you sleep is to start off by setting the stage for your night's sleep, give you some relaxation techniques, then I'll read a select amount of chapters from an old book in my normal southern accent, and finally, let the sleep sounds slowly fade to silence. Any ads or sponsorships that will support the show will play only after the intro and before the relaxation begins. This will help ensure there are no interruptions in your sleep. If you're a fan of true crime and would like to check out my other show, look up Music City 911 on any podcast app or YouTube. Let's make sure you're all set up for a great night's sleep. If you're listening on YouTube or a podcast app, turn off the setting for autoplay so you won't be woke by other sounds once the episode is over. Set the temperature in your house to the most comfortable for you. If you like sleeping with a fan on, turn it to your most desirable setting. Turn all your lights out. Turn your TV off. Make sure your room and surroundings are as silent as you can make them. Now crawl into bed. Make sure you're using your covers and pillow in the most comfy way possible. Now to start. Rid yourself of all your thoughts from the day. Anything bad or good that you have had happen during the day, let those fade away and instead concentrate only on these relaxation instructions. If you still have thoughts in your head, repeat slowly over and over for 10 seconds. Don't think. Don't think don't think. Now close your eyes. Take a breath in and slowly exhale. Let those previous thoughts leave your body as you exhale. Imagine yourself in the most calming and serene environment possible. Calm your body. Relax every part. I want you to start shutting down each part of your body from top to bottom. The top of your head and your forehead. Relax those muscles. Let yourself feel them change from tense to relaxed. Relax your eyes. Do the same with your cheeks. 
feel them fall as the tension leaves them. Now relax your jaw. Let your teeth slightly separate as you do this. Now let your shoulders drop as low as possible. And while doing that, let your arms, hands, and fingers all relax and loosen. Take another breath and think about your chest calming as you exhale slowly. Now relax your stomach, your legs, your knees, and your feet all the way down to your toes. Now that you're fully relaxed, let's listen to a selection from The Mighty Deep and What We Know of It by Agnes DeBurn. Chapter 1 The Sea The Open Sea How cheery are the mariners, those lovers of the sea. Their hearts are like its zesty waves, as bounding and as free. P. Benjamin Once upon a time, over 2,000 years ago, our ancestors lived in a country smaller than ours, to the northeast. They had not yet taken possession of two isles, which in the then distant future were to become the headquarters of a worldwide empire. Already one characteristic of the race was prominent. They delighted in the sea. Within their small limits of power, they ranged the ocean. They wrestled with its fury. They subdued it to their will. They rejoiced in its strength. They found often their graves beneath its surface. The English then, as now, were ocean folk. May it not be that we, in modern days, love the sea and flock to its shores and carry our flag to its furthest bounds because our forefathers, the Norsemen, the Angles, the ancient Vikings, found their joy in it. Their march, like ours, was on the mountain wave. Their home, like ours, was on the deep. Probably with them, as with us, it was not always an unchastened joy. Even a hardy Viking might know the unpleasant consequences of ocean's rougher moods. But no such discomforts drove him to stay ashore. Had our forefathers been made of feebler stuff, had they been easily checked in their enterprises, centuries of history must have been changed. The development of English nature would have followed other lines. In those days, the fight could not be severe. No mighty ironclads, no huge three-deckers existed. No P&O liners, no great merchant ships ranged the seas. 
our forefathers tackled the waste of waters with what we should consider the merest cockle shells. Even these days, we know what is meant by perils of the sea. But in those days, the term must have carried a hundredfold deeper meaning, both to the brave fellows who ventured on the stormy main and to the waiting wives and mothers on land. All the more honor to them that they were not daunted. Each man's victory or failure in life's battle cannot but help to shape the course which his descendants in future ages will pursue. The sea for us has a vivid personality. We know grand old Neptune so well with his trident and his snowy hair, his dashing waves and his impenetrable depths, his gentle breezes and his furious gales, his moods of mild serenity and his fits of vehement wrath. He has his faults, but in spite of all, we love him. At one time, the sea was for men a type of the infinite, of the immeasurable, of the boundless. We still use the same words, but they have lost some of their force. In these days, the whole ocean has been mapped out from shore to shore. We know exactly what countries lie around each part of it. We can tell how long and how wide it is in any direction. As we stand on the shore and talk of the boundless ocean, we are perfectly well aware that we are looking across to France or Spain, to Germany or Ireland or America. Grand and far-reaching, the sea still is, but to us, no longer boundless. In ages gone by, those who stood upon the coasts of Palestine or Egypt, of Greece or Italy, gazed towards horizons across what was to them an illimitable ocean. The civilized world consisted of a few countries bordering the Mediterranean on the east, and those countries shaded off into unexplored barbaric regions. As for the Great Sea, as they called that, which we regard as hardly more than a huge inland lake, it was in their eyes the embodiment of infinitude. At a very early period, long before the English nation was dreamt of, before the Roman Empire had grown into being, while the polished Greek of the future was still a semi-savage, a nation of ocean lovers already existed. These were the Phoenicians, foreshadowing in their pluck and enterprise the seagoing British of later times. They, unlike the sailors of other nations, did not merely hug the shore, but ventured out into the trackless ocean. They, unlike the sailors of the nations, did not go upon the sea 
only in daylight, but they traversed it also in the dark hours of the night. At first, they were content with the nearer reaches of the Indian Ocean and with the more eastern parts of the Mediterranean. But gradually, they wandered farther. Colony after colony was planted beyond Egypt till they reached the Pillars of Hercules, known to us as the Straits of Gibraltar, to face a wild and strange ocean full of mystery. There they made a startling discovery, enough to impress the more thoughtful minds among them. Far to the east, in the Indian Ocean of our days, their sailors had been acquainted with high and low tides, while throughout the Mediterranean, scarcely any tides existed. But in the open sea, outside the narrow channel, they found the very same tidal changes as in the eastern ocean. It is hardly to be supposed that any one of them had a mind of such far-seeing grasp that he should be able to conjecture the grand truth of eastern and western oceans being one, swayed by the same influences, governed by the same laws. A Phoenician of those days, catching a glimpse of this truth, would have been worthy to rank beside our Sir Isaac Newton of after days. They are believed to have observed the coincidence, no doubt with a feeling of wonder, and probably it was to them merely a coincidence. Very little was then understood of the most everyday and commonplace workings of nature. Not much indeed can be said with the certainty of what the Phoenicians did truly discover. Some observations they must have made of the heavenly constellations and the pole star at least must have been known to them. Otherwise, it is impossible to imagine how they could have steered their vessels at night in an age when the mariner's compass was unknown. They are supposed to have sailed far south on the west coast of Africa if they did not actually round the Cape of Good Hope. It does not appear that their knowledge was passed on to the Greek nation. Either they were curiously reticent of what they knew, or else records, as they may have left, were destroyed and forgotten. In after times, the Carthaginians, descendants of Phoenician colonists, were, like their forefathers, sea lovers, sea explorers, searching the main, not as travelers such now from pure love of knowledge, or from a liking for adventure, but for the sake of commerce. The Carthaginians, however, instead of being able to make use of previous discoveries and to work onwards from a point already gained, had to start afresh and to find their way, just as if it had never been found before, to and beyond the pillars of Hercules. To the Greek imagination, that wide, mysterious ocean 
opened out from the narrow strait was unattractive and terrible. It was a sea of limitless distances, of fog and gloom, of blackness and death, not an unexplored ocean of possible glory and beauty and wealth. Time glided by, and man advanced his acquaintance with land and sea, but with the latter slowly. It was not until five centuries ago, and five centuries are but as a day, compared with the full stretch of history, that two weighty steps were taken. One step was southward, one step was westward. The African continent, along its northern region, had been the scene of a very old world history, but the south was shrouded in darkness. A brief glimmer of light, perhaps thrown there in Venetian days, had been a long lost sight of. In the year AD 1486, a far leap from Venetian and Grecian days, Bartholomew Diaz made discovery of the Cape of Good Hope, and one year later, Vasco da Gama sailed round it. These two explorers were only a little in advance of two greater voyagers. In 1492, Christopher Columbus started on his first cruise into the unknown west and touched land. Less than 30 years later, Magellan's famous voyage was accomplished to the Straits between Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego, which bear his name. By that time, the existence of the American continent had become an established fact. But that continent had to be searched out, and the ocean, though its limits were widened in men's imaginations, was very far from being mapped and fenced around with definite boundaries. Years of exploration still lay ahead, and many a valiant explorer had to fall a martyr in the cause of science, because mystery should yield to knowledge. Doubtless in those days, as in these, there was always somebody to ask, but what is the use? What good can it do us to learn that there are lands beyond the sea? What shall we gain by it all? Time alone, with its developments, with the growth of the human race, with the enormous possibilities then undreamt of, could answer such questionings. Happily, brave explorers have seldom been lacking, who loving knowledge for its own sake, have been content to labor patiently, not for money, not for fame, not for immediate results, but for the simple delight of better understanding the world around them and for the benefit of future generations. And indeed, if once we begin clearly to realize that the things which we see and hear the wonders of land and ocean are the outcome and expression of divine thought 
we shall scarcely deem time wasted, which is spent in trying to find out a little more about those wonders. Chapter 2 Saltwater The new sight, the new wondrous sight, the waters around me turbulent. E.B. Browning Water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink. S.T. Coleridge The annual stampede of Britons to the coast says much for our national belief in sea breezes. In other countries, also people go to the sea for change. But perhaps nowhere does the rust excel than on our island. This revivifying gift, though partly due to the wide and free expanse through which its breezes have traveled, is largely owing to the briny ocean with which they have been in contact. Seawater differs from rainwater, well water, river water. True, it is made up of all these, since sooner or later, and in one mode or another, all water on earth finds its way to the ocean. Water may travel openly by river routes. It may creep silently by dark and devious underground passages. It may float lightly be a cloudland, but in any case, its goal is the sea. Still, though the ocean includes in its composition every kind of land water, sea water, as such, is different from them all. Not only in its vast extent and its enormous depth, but in its strong flavor of salt. One of the commonest of substances is salt. It is in the ground, in air, in water. We even know that it does not belong to our earth alone, but to many heavenly bodies also. Perhaps one reason for this abundance, at least upon our earth, is that it is necessary for life. There is salt in the make of blood and of brain of muscle and of tendon. Salt is perpetually passing out of a man's body. Therefore, continual fresh supplies of it are needed. Without a certain amount of salt in his food, he cannot keep in good health. This at one time was not understood, and salt was looked upon as a mere luxury, easily to be dispensed with. Condemned criminals were forbidden at luxury, and they went through a good deal of suffering, the reason for which was not guessed. If plenty of animal and vegetable food was given to them, they managed to get along, since both contained salt. But if they were kept on purely farinaceous fare, they broke down. Where all the salt in the ocean comes from is a complex question. Large supplies are brought down annually by rivers and streams from various minerals in their beds, as well as from rock salt regions. But if we ask, how comes the rock salt to be there? We are told that it is a deposit 
once formed beneath ocean waters, or at least left by the drying up of salt lakes and seas. A proof of the latter theory is found in multitudes of seashells, often distributed through layers of rock salt. If much sea salt came originally from rock salt on land, and if rock salt came originally from ocean deposits, we are led in a curious circle of cause and effect, not unlike that of oak and acorn, or of hen and egg, with the attendant puzzle of which first. It is a query which we are not able to answer. In former days, the salt used for household and mercantile purposes was almost entirely prepared by the evaporation of seawater. We no longer depend on this, however, and in England, the sea salt trade has gone down greatly before that of rock salt, which is found to be better for table use. It has not the same tendency to stick together in lumps after being packed in sacks. Great distances of rock salt are found in many places, such as those in the Carpathian Mountains, in the Swiss Alps, in Germany, and in Great Britain. One huge mine in Galatia has been worked for 600 years, and this supply is said to reach through about 500 miles. From British works alone, the quantity carried every year amounts to a cubic mile of salt. But land supplies grow pale and insignificant before the quantities which float in the ocean. It has been reckoned that if the waters of the ocean could be dried up, the amount of salt left on the ocean bed would be something like four and a half million cubic miles. Such an enormous mass hardly conveys a clear idea. Let us think of one single cubic mile of seawater separated from the ocean and see how much it would contain. First, the whole of that cubic mile of water has to be dried up and then the materials left behind have to be weighed. We should find about 33 millions of tons of various kinds of substances, the names of which need not be given. We should also find of common salt a supply of which, when weighed, would reach the great figure of 117 millions of tons. All this, be remembered, floating unseen in a single cubic mile of water. No wonder the sea tastes salt. In its make, water is always the same, whether it be cold or hot, freezing or boiling, causes no difference. It consists of two gases, united, and the union is remarkable in its kind. The two gases are not merely mixed together, as sand and sugar may be mixed. They are by the union changed into a fresh substance. For the time the gases exist no longer, in their stead, water has been formed. And when the gases enter into this very close relationship, 
they do it always in the same manner. There's just so much of one and just so much of the other. One portion of hydrogen has to join with eight times as much by weight of oxygen. Neither more nor less of either. The same is true whether we are speaking of a great mass of water or of the tiniest speck. It is not actually correct to say, as is said above, that water consists of the two gases. So long as the water exists, the gases do not exist. And when, through the action of heat or electricity, the water is broken up and the gases reappear, then the water no longer exists. But at least we may say that it is the result of the uniting of those two gases and that it can be made in no other way. An interesting experiment has been tried. A certain amount of hydrogen gas and eight times as much of oxygen gas were weighed separately by means of very delicate instruments. Then, through great heat, the two were caused to unite into water and the water was also weighed. It was found to be just as heavy as the two gases together had been, and quite naturally so, since neither of the two gases had lost or gained in weight. This kind of union is called chemical. French people are fond of eau A lump of sugar is dropped into a glass of water, and it disappears but it has not been destroyed. It has not ceased to be sugar. No mysterious union has taken place between the sugar and the water. Neither water nor sugar has changed its nature, and no fresh substance has come into existence in their stead. The water is there as it was before. The sugar is there too, not visible, but to be found out by our sense of taste. It has only been separated by the water into such minute particles that we cannot see them. This is a case of mixing, not of chemical union. When we think of the characteristics of seawater as compared with fresh water, we have to do with simple mixing. As sugar floats, unseen but not untasted, in tea or coffee, so salt floats, unseen but not untasted, in ocean waters. Such a thing as absolutely pure water is very rare. No matter how clear a stream may seem to us, it holds a vast number of specks of material collected from earth and air. Once a scientific man had some, most carefully distilled, which seemed to be of crystal purity, but he put it under the strong beam of an electric lamp, and alas, for human powers, after so doing, he could only declare that the idea of purity was ludicrous. If it is so with distilled water, the less said the better about common drinking water. It well may be for our peace of mind that we have not stronger sight. Ocean water holds about 
200 times as much dissolved material as ordinary fresh water. The different kinds of substances found in any particular water supply determine the character of that water, making it sweet or sour or salt, rendering its health-giving or death-dealing. Something has been said about the drying away of seawater and the leaving of salt behind. A remarkable instance of salt thus left is seen in the Ran of Kutch, a flat Indian plain about 190 miles long and half as wide. During the southwest monsoon, the ocean waters are forced by powerful winds up the Gulf of Kutch to a considerable height, overspreading the Ran, which for a time is turned into a shallow lake. When dry weather comes, the water vanishes, partially retiring, partly evaporating, and a salt stream desert is left, varied by sand ridges, green spots, and little lakes, but covered principally by sheets of salt crust. My father, when there many years ago with his regiment, noted down his impressions of the scene. From this spot, the spot on which he stood, the water is about eight miles distant, the intermediate space being a flat surface entirely covered by a quarter of an inch with salt and crystals, looking much like snow, in such quantities that it can be scraped up by the hand perfectly free from earth. And on all this space, not a blade of grass to be seen. The same task is carried on by working of sun heat as by the fire under a kettle. All day long, in a warm climate, the sun's rays are busily at work, lifting from the ocean surface a continuous stream of fine, invisible vapor. The water is drawn up particle by particle, not in masses, and the sun's rays have no power to lift the ocean salt, which remains behind, floating still in the sea. But when a strong wind lashes the surface into waves and reads the tops of billows into fine spray, it often carries a great deal of salt to a distance. We know how salt may be tasted on the lips miles inland, and how windows near the coast become encrusted with it in stormy weather. Moving air, like moving water, can carry weight. And it is thus, through the action of moving air, and not through the heat of the sun, that we have our health-giving breezes off the sea, laden with salt.